Hello, pod people. I'm DA, and welcome to Millennial Edition. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we will be discussing the recent wave in anti-abortion laws and the proposed strategy of enacting a sex strike. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter to be a part of the discussion. Okay, so let's dive right in. So this last Tuesday, May 7th, the voter suppressor, Brian Kemp of Georgia, signed what is known as the heartbeat bill into law. So essentially, the bill, when it goes into effect in 2020, will make it illegal to have an abortion once a fetal heartbeat is detected. So overall, undermining the protections set forth in the landmark case Roe versus Wade, which we will get into in a second. Of course, most women do not even know that they are pregnant by the time the heartbeat is detected, which is usually around six weeks. And even more concerning, the Georgia bill seeks to prosecute and imprison both doctors and pregnant women alike, which I'm certain makes those involved in the prison industrial complex leap with joy. And GOP lawmakers are jumping at the chance to enact pieces of legislation that will ultimately strike down Roe v. Wade because the Supreme Court is now conservative and will thus more likely favor the anti-abortion legislation. Which is why at least 15 states have introduced anti-abortion bills like the heartbeat bill. Now ultimately, the Georgia abortion ban will be challenged and blocked, much like in Arkansas, in, in North Dakota, and in Iowa, but all of these actions are very concerning for rights groups fighting for women's health care and bodily autonomy. After all, they know what it took to move the needle this far in women's rights. So let's review the landmark ruling at the center of this debate, the 1973 case of Roe v. Wade, or Jane Roe v. Henry Wade. And the Supreme Court decided that the 14th Amendment gave the right to privacy for pregnant women who chose to have an abortion. It went further to spell out that abortion could not be prohibited in the first and second trimesters. The only caveat to that is starting with the second trimester, the government can, in quote, regulate the abortion procedure in ways that are reasonable related to maternal health, end quote. Now, the third trimester allows the government to prohibit abortions, except in situations where it is necessary to save the life of the mother. So overall, Roe versus Wade explicitly states abortion bans cannot happen in the first and second trimesters, and Brian Kemp's legislation bans abortions after six weeks in the first trimester, so this will more than likely be blocked and struck down. So where do I stand in all of it? Well, I will always support the right of women to choose what is best in their own healthcare interests. And being pregnant and having a baby is an issue of healthcare. Rolling back the protections that Roe versus Way gave won't mean less abortions and or unintended pregnancies. It will simply mean what it has always meant in the history of this nation, more dead women and more healthcare professionals incarcerated. The GOP lawmakers know this and simply do not care because they claim to be pro life, but are willing to jeopardize the lives of women. And the hypocrisy is astounding. So I've realized that those who claim to be pro-life are not really pro-life, but are simply anti-abortion because they are only on the front lines when it comes to this issue. But I can't help but notice that they are strangely quiet when they hear that Americans have died because they couldn't afford life-saving medications. I've never seen them picket a pharma company the way they picket Planned Parenthood. I also noticed that they are strangely silent 
punishment on the deaths of the asylum seekers, especially the children and babies that are locked in the internment camps. And even more disturbing, I have yet to see the so-called pro-life movement protest the high rates of miscarriages of the asylum-seeking women because of the harsh conditions and lack of medical care in the internment camps. And I just can't seem to get past the idea that most people who claim pro-life own a gun, a tool designed to take life. And they vehemently oppose any legislation that regulates gun ownership. And these so-called pro-lifers are nowhere to be found when there occurs time and time again an unlawful shooting of an unarmed person, mainly people of color, at the hands of a police officer who they willfully support to carry a gun. You know, that tool that takes life. So of course these draconian policies that seek to undermine a woman's freedom have me deeply concerned. They don't care anything for life or babies or even fetuses for that matter. They care about women's leadership. That's what this is about. Ensuring women stay divided over this issue and oppressed, lest we vote them out of their seats and start ruling ourselves. Now, I have been trusted by the government to make decisions over my own healthcare since the age of accountability. I decide whether or not to take medicine when I'm sick. I'm trusted to get medical care in more severe situations, all without the knowledge, permission, or regulation by the men in my life or the government. And I do not recall signing over any right to anyone to make any of those decisions for me. So I am confused that when we get to my stomach region, or if we are talking on the inside, the region where my uterus is housed, how this particular section of my body is up for debate by people who don't know me and frankly don't care about my life. And why would political opportunists, mostly male of course, believe that they know more about my own body than I do, so they have the right to enact policies that give them a greater voice in matters affecting my own life? I have never thought my feelings were more important than any male in my life making a decision over their own health care. I never stood outside the hospital room of a man making a decision decision about his health and shouted all manner of hatred at him because I believed that I knew what was better for his own body than he did. So why this is being done to women is what I had mentioned before, to suppress the freedoms and the voice of women. And I'm not alone in the outrage over these oppressive policies. And women and rights groups collectively are looking for strategies and solutions to combat this. And one particular strategy is stirring a whole lot of controversy. So last week, after Kemp signed the heartbeat bill in Georgia, actress Alyssa Milano called for a sex strike until the right of women to their own body autonomy is restored. And well, there has been wide debate on this method of activism. So before we jump into any conclusions, let's take a look at how the method of the sex strike has been used in women's liberation movements. So like always, I like to start out with some definitions so that we are all on the same page. So a sex strike is exactly how it sounds. It's a form of nonviolent protest where women withhold sex from their husbands until a certain women's liberation goal is achieved. So immediately when many heard the term sex strike, they referenced the Greek comedy Lesistrata that was first performed around 411 BC and ultimately the plot was that the women in the play went on a sex strike until the men negotiated peace and the Peloponnesian War. Outside of plays, groups of women all around the world have participated in this unique act of resistance. 
In 2009, the women in Kenya called for a sex strike by the wives of all politicians in order to force the prime minister and the president to reconcile on how they will lead Kenya. The strike lasted for about seven days and ended with the leaders in negotiations. In June 2011, the Cross Legs movement was born from women living in the remote village of Barbacoas, Colombia, to bring attention to the need for repair of a dangerous 35-mile highway that made it difficult for those living in the village to get to the nearest hospital for medical care. It, it has taken some people 24 hours to travel down it, and many women have died on their way to the hospital, especially pregnant women. October of that same year, their government promised to start repairing the road. And before the election of the first female president, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the Women of Liberia Mass Action for Peace group organized a series of women liberation actions, including a sex strike. And this led to the end of the 14-year-long civil war. So the strategy of using a sex strike is not a new one, though some may see it as a radical step. But when I think about applying it to the current suppression tactics by Trump's GOP, I wonder about its overall effectiveness. So I think that in regards to nonviolent protests, we should be looking at taking any and all actions that can be helpful and or effective so long as they are nonviolent. The goal is women's liberation. But when I looked at some of the most famous sex strikes, including in the Greek comedy, they had a couple of characteristics that might have made the strike more effective. I first noticed that the sex strikes took place in communities that were uniformly heteronormative and patriarchal. In addition, they are societies with communal reliance. And the importance of this is most to all women play the same role when it comes to what they do, who they marry, and who they have daily interactions with, which makes it easier for getting all the women on the same page at the same time. So for the women living in the village of Barbacoas, Colombia, they all had to use this same stretch of dangerous road. Studies show that there are approximately 157 million women in varying parts of the United States. That means 150 57 million with different experiences, living in different towns, living in different cities, with different roles they play in society, with different relationships, with different political views. And most importantly, our society is not communal, but more individualistic in nature. Getting a small fraction of women on the same page to participate in the strike may seem next to impossible. Even if we delegated a targeted group of women, as was the case in Kenya, it still may prove difficult difficult getting them on the same page and unfortunately not having full or almost 100% participation renders the sex strike immediately ineffective. And from what I understand, Milano is not calling for a targeted sex strike like, you know, all GOP wives participate in it. It's just a blanket sex strike. But let's look at something else. We as women in America are not all surrounded by the same type of male. None of the men in my family, friendship group, or even the men I date support this bill or any oppression of women, not one of them. They are fighters for a women's right to choose. So while the men I date are fighting, on my side, what the sex strike is calling for is for me to take action by denying these men intimacy in the hopes that Trump's GOP, who is guilty of enacting these oppression policies, whom I have no contact with, and they do not, and frankly should not, know my sexual history or habits, will somehow know I am taking a sex strike, and this will ultimately lead them to relent in giving women back the right to make decisions over their own bodies. You see? 
it doesn't and probably won't be effective. And just to remind everyone, the ultimate goal for the GOP is to stay in power so that they can continue to have some sort of say or have some place in the decisions that involve my own body. So a sex strike in this regard would place them back in the conversation with what I do with my body, which is an unintended consequence. Also, we mentioned that the examples from history featured heteronormative societies. That is not our modern society. So what becomes of those in same-sex relationships? Technically, the strike excludes them. And even though the GOP is oppressing women, not all of their relationships or intimate encounters are heteronormative. Some are not in relationships at all. Studies have shown that a good portion of male Trump supporters are single. Lindsey Graham is single and there is no record of any relationships he's in. How would the sex strike impact these groups who have no romantic connections to begin with? Finally, I think men often see women in the role of a sexual object and yes, denying them intimacy might demonstrate to them our importance in this role, but therein lies the problem. Women are important in every role, in every way, and every facet of society, not just this one. Women's liberation movements are trying to move society away from these oppressive stereotypes, that women are most purposeful when they are in the role of pleasure to a man. We are more than that, and if we want to be seen as more than that, then the action cannot default back to a woman using her sexuality that ties itself to the pleasure we give a man. I fully trust in the creativity and intelligence of women to find actions that directly address oppression, like voting. We must absolutely vote oppressors like Kemp and Trump out of office and far away from platforms where they can spread harmful ideology. If we are going to unite on anything, especially when it comes to women's liberation, let's unite on voting. It is clear we are not united on this front yet. A reminder that in Georgia particularly, 70% white women voted Kemp into power. Kemp, throughout his voter-suppressing campaign, pledged he would, end quote, significantly move the needle on pro-life legislation, end quote. So he said he would do this, and 70% white women still voted for Kemp anyways. I think that Alyssa Milano is really good at thinking of creative actions to answer the wave of oppression we are seeing. But as not all women agree with the women's liberation movement, especially white women who often largely largely vote in favor of the GOP against their own interests, maybe we should turn the attention there instead of between our legs. After all, think of all the possibilities in this nation if women voted in unity against oppression. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Millennial Edition, and I look forward to engaging with you all soon.